Hey guys, on this episode, we have Peter Mann, founder and CEO of Aranzi. Peter is a problem solution manufacturer who saw a need for a quality air purifier. He took a concept and created not only a product, but a trusted brand. Without further ado, enjoy the show. This podcast is sponsored by Promus Incorporated, the leading provider of fully electric servo presses for manufacturing. Promus provides global support for pressing and motion control applications in multiple industries. With precise positioning and in-process force monitoring, your company will begin to see ROI on day one. Call 810-229-9334 or email sales at promisinc.com to speak with an expert engineer about your application today. Hey guys, welcome to Manufacturing Unscripted. I'm your host, Matt Rawl. And I'm Lauren. Today we are joined with Peter Mann from Oranzi. He's the founder and CEO. Hey Peter, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for being on. Um, uh, well, Peter, with all first-time guests, I, I love to learn about your journey um, kind of through the industry and kind of how you got to where you are today. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. I'll just, um, start by saying, you know, I went to college and never took a business class. Um, and so, um, I think I got my on the job MBA by working at, um, two fortune 100 tech companies, um, tech data and Dell. And from there I started or co-founded an e-commerce business. I ran that for seven years, um, sold my part of that and then started a Ronsi in 2009. Um, to focus on indoor air quality products. And that was really driven by my son who um, suffered with asthma as an infant. And so, you know, I wanted to develop products that helped him as well as, you know, other people like him. I guess what, um, you know, for someone with without a degree in business and kind of getting more into business, what, what, what drove you there? Is there anything there that you've always, you know, is business just kind of always been a thing you wanted to do or... Uh, I would say I, I was really interested in autonomy, mm-hmm. <laughs> being in control of my destiny and not having to work for someone. Um, and when I was at Dell, the dot-com bubble burst happened and, you know, we were doing round after round of layoffs. And while I wasn't concerned with the safety of my job, it was just um, not a fun place to be. And so that was kind of the push to, you know, start something on my own. And then, and then so you started Oranzi, and I just thought it was, you know, unique as I looked into more of the background of, of the origin of that name. And uh, it said that you're, uh, you were in Syracuse for a bit. And, you know, is orange your favorite color to say? Um, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I grew up there. My dad yeah. was, a, um, you know, he was a mechanical engineer and you know, design products for GE, but mm-hmm. he also was a adjunct professor at Syracuse University. So I grew up around the university. Um, and it means, you know, orange and Finnish. And my grandmother yep. grew up in Finland and was pretty influential in my life. And so oh, yeah. it kind of combines the two of two of those. And um, it also means rejuvenation, which I mm-hmm. think fit well with, you know, air purification and um, trying to improve people's lives. Yeah, no, that's, I didn't know that last one, and that's actually great. I mean, the fact that you're able to tie all that in is uh, super, super cool. Um, and then I guess kind of getting more into Aranzi and what you're doing there, um, something I, I noted as well is you do a lot of manufacturing in the U.S. Um, and, and how important was that to you 
um, when you started the company? Yeah, it was something I, w- I was always interested in. Um, you know, I grew up in a manufacturing area and, and in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, kind of watched all the jobs leave. <laughs> and so, and it was something that if I had the opportunity to do something, I, I wanted to to do what I, I could. And I, you know, started in, I think, 2013, I started working with a contract manufacturer in the U.S. to develop air purifiers. Um, and we, you know, uh, developed the products, brought them to market. They did pretty well. The challenge was the cost um, was quite a bit more, quite a bit higher than you can get from the imports. And so it was hard to get a lot of traction on the volume side. And so, um, you know, but I always, you know, wanted to do it. And and now I'm really excited um, since, you know, we merged with an electric motor company in 2021 we now have the means to make the motors and make the products and, and actually reshore in the U.S. and be competitive on the cost standpoint. I guess um, just kind of for further clarification, I guess what was the big impact of being able to manufacture your own motors um, in terms of the purifier? Is that just kind of what you're, is drives the air or, or pulls the air in? Yeah, it's really the engine of the mm-hmm. product and it's, you know, you're, you're pulling air through a filter. Um, and so it's just really only two parts to an air purifier. It's the motor fan and the filter. <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah. you know, and, and for us, it's with what we have, we have a competitive advantage in terms of higher performance and lower noise and, and lower cost. And so that's a, you know, it, I think it's a good place to be um, for us longer term. And then I guess, as you brought in the new technology, how much of a learning curve was that for you um, in terms of, you know, being now more hands-on with like the motor side and then the part that you provided, I'm sure there was some kind of, um, some type of learning that needed to take place or training. Yeah. So when, when we merged uh, with that motor company in 2021, I brought on a business partner and he's really the motor expert. Yep. My focus is more on the marketing, the design, the market, um, you know, making sure what we're making is something customers want. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's, it really takes both, both sides, um, I, I think to be successful. And so in terms of the the motor and the manufacturing side, my business partner brings all of that experience to the table. So it's mm-hmm. not, I mean, it's something I'm I'm there at the factory and I'm you know clued into what's going on, but it's you know not something that I'm you know having to spend most of my time on. Yeah. Um. So how do you decide on your distribution? Like, how do you decide where you're going to sell or how you're going to sell your product? Yeah, so our, our air purifier category is largely online. And mm-hmm. so we try and do as much as we can direct to the consumer. Um, part of being, you know, a aggressive price point is is really streamlining the supply chain. And so we're really taking raw materials and components, making a finished good, marketing it and selling and shipping it to the end user. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the focus, but we know people shop on Amazon, so we have to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We're branching out into Walmart and, you know, some of the other, um, you know, bigger online marketplaces. Um, at this point, we're not in retail stores, although, um, you know, possibly that could change in, in a year or so. But for now, we're really uh, focusing on direct-to-consumer. That's great. 
Um, so you mentioned supply chain, and I'm sure that's been a headache for you like it has been for everybody else. But I guess what have you guys done to help like kind of mitigate some of that, um, some of the issues that everyone else has seen in, in the industry? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of planning. Um, I know certain things like chips are can be hard to get, and so we're or we're placing orders a year out for some mm-hmm. of these things and scheduling the deliveries. I I don't know how else to work around some of the long lead time items or some of the shortage items. You know, in some cases we carry excess inventory, even though it's not ideal, but it um, it you know it, it kind of eliminates the stockouts. Um, you know, for us, if we're out one or two key components, you can't make the product. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> and so I think it's, it's being on top of the supply chain and having good relationships with all of the component suppliers. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, having multiple component suppliers, just in case, you know, something's out, you can, you know, it doesn't impact mm-hmm. your business. With the motor, I mean, you guys kind of became a little bit more vertically integrated. How do you, I mean, how do you make that decision from a business perspective? You know, is there any thoughts about adding more vertical integration to what you guys are doing in terms of like maybe building the chips yourself or anything like that? Yeah, I think, I think going forward, we're we're looking at every single component and deciding, you know, what do we want to outsource and what do Mm -hmm. we want to bring in house? There are certain, certain functions. It's like, you know, within uh, motors, there's copper and copper windings. It's like, do you buy the windings or do you do it yourself and mm-hmm. buy the equipment to do that? And so some of these things, it's uh, you have to be at a certain volume for it to make sense to buy the equipment and, and go through that process. But um, we've pretty much mapped all of that out because um, there are some issues if you're reliant on a particular supplier. <laughs> They can't produce it, and you know if you can do it yourself, it just eliminates that potential, you know, issue down the road. But for us, it's it's really a, a cost benefit analysis as to you know what we bring in house and what we just what we source. Um, and then you know, so kind of talking a little bit more broad spectrum. I know in talking with you, you said it was important to not just build a product, but build a brand that people trust and know that they're getting good quality product. And how has that been for you? Like, I mean, I'm sure it's not easy starting from scratch, but you know, what type of challenges and, you know, what's that experience like? Yeah. I mean, I think when you're, I I think over time, a lot of product categories become commodities and then brand really becomes important. Uh, And people buy on brand because that's what they trust and people buy from people they like and who they trust. And so I think it's building that, relationship with your customers is is really important and that's that's what we're you know focused on doing and delivering a really good customer experience um, it, it's even things like having a strong customer service department so when someone calls somebody actually answers the phone and takes care of their problem um, you don't you know say your call is very important to us and then you're on hold for mm-hmm. <laughs> 15 yeah. or 30 minutes um it just, you know, basic things like that, but um, it's also listening to your customers and, uh, you know, really being good partners with them. And, um, you know, it's it's a competitive, you know, marketplace that we're in. And I know that for us to grow, that word of mouth is by far the most effective marketing mm-hmm. you can do. And so if you give people a really good positive um, experience they're more likely to talk about you and you know and that just helps your business and so um, 
you know, ultimately, I think brand becomes really important. You know, when you, you know, at some point, you know, an air purifier is a motor, a fan, and a filter. It's like everybody can do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, or, or like Nike, it's like, why should we buy from you? And it's like, it's the trust and how it makes you feel and yep. your comfort level, um, you know, with that brand. Now, you, you mentioned kind of you guys are now at Amazon and then other big retailers. How are you, like, is there a strategy be, behind keeping that strong customer service base as you're, you know, because I know you sell directly through your website, but when you sell through, like, a third party, how hard or how difficult has it been to kind of maintain that customer service, like, level that you, you expect? Yeah, you lose a little bit of it when you sell through other marketplaces and other sellers. We've done something a little bit different with with Amazon. Is Amazon wants you to do FBA or fulfillment by Amazon, which is you ship product to their warehouse and then they ship it to the customer and handle all the customer service. And we're not doing that. We do fulfillment by manufacturer, FBM. And so we're handling the customer service and doing the shipping and um, you know, we don't have the prime badge, but we found surprisingly is it's, it's not affected our conversion rates at all, but it allows us to better service the customer, um, and, and, and really, um, connect with the customer as well as, uh, minimize the shipments because we're not shipping to Amazon and then Amazon yeah. reships to the customer. It's just from us to the customer. So we have a better sense for who the customer is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for us, that's been, um, it's it's worked out really well. It's pretty interesting because the people at Amazon, this is like weird to them that somebody could <laughs> somebody can do that because everything is get on FBA and get on Prime and you know and then let Amazon do their thing. But what we found is it 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 cuts our costs with Amazon in half by doing it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so it's a huge. I mean, we're saving fourteen fifteen percent. Um, wow by doing it ourselves. It's, it's, it's a huge difference. Um, and, and all the inventory is in one place. You don't have mm-hmm. inventory at yep. 20 different Amazon warehouses oh you're trying to keep track of. And so it, it really simplifies the business and it gives us more control over the process. Um, and, and kind of talking on that, I imagine you get a lot of, um, like customer analytics, when you're the one shipping, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're seeing it, you know, maybe it's shipped more often to this area of the country or, you know, a lot more people are buying this type of air purifier. I mean, I'm sure that's helpful for you as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, I mean, Google has all, all kinds of data, but mm-hmm. it, it kind of aligns with the Amazon data. And for us, um, you know, people typically buy an air purifier to solve a problem and that's mm-hmm. something in the air. And so, um, yeah, and there's a seasonality to it. And you can see if it's, you know, allergy season, you can see, you know, specific areas where it's going to pop up. And then if it's wildfire season, which, you know, unfortunately has been a, a problem out West for the last several years, you mm-hmm. know, that it, it just really creates a spike um, when these problems, you know, erupt and you can kind of just see it in the, in the data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. And, so yeah, I think it's I think it's very important. I know Lauren, um, at least in the company we work, is very very brand in tuned, um, and it's very critical to her to, you know, make sure that anything that 
is represented by the company we work at, you know, the branding and everything is consistent and that it's the, it's what people expect, you know, and it's what people know. Yeah. It is really important to build a brand that people trust and can count on. And I just hearing you talk about this, Peter, I'm just really impressed, um, kind of building a whole company from the ground up, you know, and just for how much success you've seen, like you're still keeping that like small company feel, you know? So I, I think that alone just, that definitely as a consumer, like makes you feel good. Like these people are doing something right. So I just want to condone you on that. It's just really awesome. And I think, yeah. And I think, (laughs) I think your story too of, you know, um, you know, wanting to build something better for your son. Um, I think that story, you know, is also very good for your brand because, you know, you're, you're a parent that's concerned about their child and, and wanting to put something in front of them that you trust. And I think that goes a long way into saying, you know, kind of assuring that it's a good quality product, you know? Yeah, it's, thanks. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, it's been really fascinating before COVID with the air purifiers mm-hmm. market, it was more of a niche market. And then when it just exploded during COVID and it kind of in a way feels like everybody and their brothers yeah. <laughs> entered the market now and, and it's, I think it was just because their the market just grew is why mm-hmm. people entered the market, but not that they understood the market or understood the customers or even understood what they were selling. And so, um, you know, I think for us, it's going to be interesting going forward. What happens? I, there's got to be a consolidation because you can't double the number of brands and yeah. <laughs> have the market, it, you know, go way up and then go back to where it was before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, I think understanding the marketplace and the customers is, is critical in building products that, that actually solve people's problems, which is kind of where our focus has been, um, you know, I think is going to connect, uh, you know, much better than the competition as well as taking cost out and being more, mm-hmm. um, being able to price it lower. Yeah. And still, I, you know, make a decent profit, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I heard a statistic once and you can tell me if this is right. But I heard that the air in your house is dirtier than the air outside. Is this true? <laughs> yeah, it typically is like two to five times worse. Yeah. And what happened is that, you know, after the um, late 70s, there was the energy crisis and they started building homes a lot more energy efficient. And so making it energy efficient means like you run your air conditioner and it doesn't, you don't lose cold air to the outside. But the problem is it, it steals everything in your house. Yes. And so you have, you know, you can cook inside, you could have chemicals, you could have new carpeting that off gases or furniture. There's all these things that are creating indoor air pollution that don't have a way to get out because you've made your house. So um, you, you, you've solved the energy issue and created an air quality issue that, mm-hmm. that didn't exist before. And so, you know, now they're really starting to understand the implications of that. You know, it's even the gas stoves has recently become a hot topic issue because now they're starting to see it's like, oh, this creates nitrogen dioxide. That's a, not a great thing to have in your home. Mm-hmm. And so and so there's all kinds of things like that that exist that um, they're really just beginning to understand. And so now it's you know, how do you clean the air given that it doesn't ventilate properly to the outside? And so that's, right. you know, if you either have to open windows or ventilate it somehow or, you know, clean the air. 
I guess that's a question I have as a consumer is, you know, for a typical house, um, how many air purifiers would I need to clean my clean the air? And I'm sure there's probably different sizes maybe you can get then, depending on the square footage or volume. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. This has been a largely unregulated industry. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. And and a, and a lot of what gets marketed is not the performance of the product. It's features that mm-hmm. a product has, which may or may not have anything, any any correlation to how well it cleans. And so what I would say is that uh, the D- Department of Energy just uh, agreed to regulations that they're going to start to put in place at the end of this year, which will actually give consumers the one number they need to know as to what the performance is, how large of an area each unit can clean. And they have all that data on the energystar.gov website. Okay. And so it, it depends on the product. You know, you have some that can only clean 100 to 150 square feet, and you have some that can clean 1,700 square feet. It really depends on the product. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and everything in between. Yeah. And so, and so you mentioned um, kind of listening to the customer and kind of designing around their needs. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that being, you know, an engineer myself, I feel like I struggle with this with a lot. And that's kind of like the, the difference or maybe more the cohesiveness between industrial engineering and just, you know, design engineering where you need those two to kind of come together and match because, you know, the max manufacturability of a product is really what's going to help you sell the product. Cause you talk about lowering the cost, you know, you know, and, having a good quality product, there's a lot that has to coordinate between those two. Um, and so I don't know what type of challenges you faced when you guys were coming up with your design. Yeah, I think, I think this is a common issue among all mm-hmm. engineers and designers. It's it's the, the conflict arises at the points where engineering and design meet. Like somebody has to compromise or you have to work mm-hmm. together to find a solution because there's that um you know what we do is we think about well who's the end user of this product how does this impact them um you know in some cases it it's like yeah this needs to look or work a certain way and we need to focus on the design or we have to make it for manufacturability otherwise the cost is going to go up and that also creates a problem for the customer so how can we get them the lowest cost um best looking product, best user experience type product. And it's it's about talking through all those issues with the design and engineering to find a solution that works. And it's that's where most of the time is spent. I think mm-hmm. it's it's, you know, if you look at the engineers, they they want to make it as manufacturable as possible, as simple as possible. And then the designers um, don't really have a concept of engineering so much. They just want to make it look as beautiful as possible. <laughs> have all the features mm-hmm. that they want. And uh, you know, for us, it's it's really just kind of looking at the third view, which is who's going to use this thing and what are they mm-hmm. willing to pay for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we'll we'll make it not look as good as it could, but it it lowers the the you know the manufacturability, the assembly process. We kind of think through all of that and we're like. What does that mean from a cost standpoint? Or are we going to sell more if it has this feature and just try and estimate and just kind of make it more of a a data decision than an emotional decision Um, and then just go forward. But it's, that's a common, (laughs) that's a common issue, I think, with, with any product development. 
Oh, no, for sure. I, I 100% agree. Is there any um, aspect of your design that you can remember that maybe the the industrial guy and the designer really butted heads on and you guys had to ultimately come to kind of a consensus or a compromise? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like even stuff like the finish of a product, if you're oh, making yeah. a plastic part, mm-hmm. the designers want it super shiny and, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the, the engineers are like, this thing is going to scratch so easily. <laughs> if, we, <laughs> if we make it like that, it's going to yeah. be a nightmare. It's going to create uh, returns or people are going to complain about it. And it's like, okay, well then how, you know, how much of a shine can we give it before that becomes a problem? And mm-hmm. so we kind of, kind of work back from that. Yep. I guess at this point, Peter, I, I'd like to open it up to you if there's anything that you want to discuss or, or mention um, as we kind of get near to the end. Um, is there anything you want to discuss that maybe we didn't have a chance to? Um, yeah, I would just, just mention, you know, we've been working on our reshoring project for a couple of years now. And, you know, I, I'd always thought that to get the cost load, you had to make products in China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I've come to realize is, is that labor is really where the, the cost is for the most part. Components don't cost that much differently um, depending upon where you get them. But it's, it's you know, the labor that goes into making something, mm-hmm. the manufacturability and assembly. And, um, you know, most people assume that you're using all kinds of robotics to yeah. manufacture something in the U.S. But, you know, there is a way to do it where... If you just design it with the fewest parts and the ease of assembly, so you don't need 50 people on an assembly line, you could have five or 10 mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that basically put this thing together. You, you can get there. Uh, you can increase your output and really reduce your costs. And that's that's really what our approach is, is just, just really that simply. No, that's that's a great point. Um, well, Peter, you've, you've given me a lot to think about Uh in terms of my home air quality, <laughs> um, you know, you might you, you might see a ping coming from Michigan on your website um, as I as I look to uh, improve my air quality. Um, so so thank you for that, and uh, thank you for being on the show. Uh, I, I truly appreciate it. Um, I think what you're doing is a very good thing. Um, and, and, and thank you. And Lauren? Yeah, thank you. Um, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. If you are listening, don't forget you can also watch us on YouTube. And uh, we'll have uh, all of Peter's info in the show notes as well as his uh, website. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks. Until next time. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Promus Incorporated, hosted by Matthew Rawl, mixed and edited by Ben Parsons, and produced by myself, Lauren Rawl. If you have any questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to podcast at promisinc.com.